So page 1170, starting at Galatians chapter 4. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the element, elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time has, had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I, that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. For them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears, bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirits. It is the same now. 
But what does, the, what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be no, of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor un uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted. In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. 
but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone, without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows so please their flet, to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the whole, the whole uh, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Middle bit over here is where uh, the churches in Galatia were that Paul was writing to. And it's a, it's a polemical letter, if that's the right word. It's a letter of polemic. So you don't often hear the letter of Galatians expounded very much um, because Paul is very upset with the Christians at Galatia because false teachers have followed him following his first missionary journey and the false teachers have come up from Jerusalem, said that they're part of um, the leadership of the church at Jerusalem and they are trying to lead these Christians away by saying that um, uh, as they're Gentiles, although they would have been in mixed churches, there would have been synagogues in, uh, in, in Galatia where the gospel was first preached, but then more and more Gentiles would have been coming into those early churches and they were coming into those churches, these false teachers, and they were saying, no, you have to become Jewish. You have to take on the full ceremony of the Jewish calendar year with its feasts and festivals and you men have to be circumcised. In other words, you have to become Jewish in order to be Christians. So Paul, uh, in, his, in, his, uh, in his opening statements of Galatians, is um, seeking to confront this head-on, and he, he has to resist them, and insists that salvation, in fact, is by faith alone. And uh, the title of our... Um, 
of our series uh, has been distraction uh, can lead to destruction. And uh, what was happening was that there was this huge danger that the, the Christians in the churches in Galatia were being distracted from Christ and being forced to think about taking on Jewish ceremonies and the Jewish religion. So in those early churches, the, the big crisis was um, in the early church that um, the early Christians were Jewish. The early Christian preachers would have gone to the Jewish synagogues and preached. And there were many thousands of people becoming Christians who were Jewish. Acts 2 is a picture of what was happening throughout the Roman world. 3,000 converted on that one day in Jerusalem. But then thereafter, as the Christian preachers went out to the synagogues, more and more Jewish people were starting to realise that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Christ. But then what started to happen was that Gentiles also started to hear this message and were embracing it for themselves. Now, there were one or two Gentiles who had been welcomed into the synagogue as God-fearing people. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter is invited by one of these uh, people, a centurion, to go and preach this new message at his home. And uh, Peter went there and he preached and he and his family and friends who were Gentiles uh, were converted. And what then started to happen was that more and more Gentiles started to hear this message and were believing it for themselves and started to embrace Christ as the saviour of the world. And it dawned on these early Christian preachers that maybe this was what God intended all along. And they started to read the Old Testament passages where there are prophecies about the gospel and the message of God being proclaimed to the whole world. And the whole world would be coming into the temple. So that's what was happening. But there were early Christian Jewish believers who weren't happy. Because there was this huge social, ethnic and religious divide that had previously existed. Whereby if you were Jewish and you were walking down the street you wouldn't even walk on the same side of the road. These pagan Gentiles, they lived almost like animals. Uh, they didn't recognise marriage very often, and uh, they got up to all kinds of practices that were definitely not Jewish and not religious and not God-fearing at all. So there was a challenge for these early Christians because Gentiles were coming into their church is a bit like this. And what would happen was, as we saw last week, the Gentiles would sit on one side of the hall or one side of the family room, if they were meeting in a home. And uh, so Gentiles on one side and the Jews would sit on the other. This huge problem. Acts 15 is the story of how the Christian church came together to try and sort this out. And the council at Jerusalem came to recognise Paul's message that God was indeed working through him to bring his kingdom into the Gentile world, or rather, the Gentile world into his kingdom. And, uh, we, as, a, and as we saw last week, this uh, crisis, um, there was a way through it. And Paul and uh, his, um, his, his companions 
managed to navigate their way through this by saying, no, actually, this is in God's plan. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Gentiles would be coming into God's kingdom. And everybody realised that that indeed what was happening. So, we looked last week at the first three chapters. And I think last week, that's, yeah, so we looked at uh, the false teachers at their gospel and we, we talked about Acts 15. Then we talked about this um, incident where Peter had come to visit the churches at Galatia but had withdrawn from the Gentiles and would only eat with his Jewish friends. And Paul confronted him and he said, no, you are not to separate off, you're to, you're to embrace Gentile Christians. And uh, he uh, explained his gospel of justification by faith alone. And then we looked in chapter 3 at what is the gospel and how did the gospel come in in the first place? Well, Paul's argument is that the law came 430 years after Abraham. And indeed, when, um, when God came to Abraham, uh, the promise in Genesis chapter 12 was embraced by Abraham by faith. And uh, so faith precedes obedience to the law in uh, chronological terms. So we've got halfway through Paul's argument, and as I say, uh, uh, we will skip over large bits of chapter four because I don't understand it. But um, <laughs> but uh, I'm being very honest there. But um, so we come to uh, chapter four. But I just want to give uh, a kind of slight illustration of what, um, in our modern terms, uh, this might have meant. So a good friend of mine used to live in our road, Christian man, uh, was going to the school gate uh, every day and met this, this lady from West Africa and they would chat every morning and, um, and gradually as, as the days and the weeks went by, uh, he was chatting more and more with this lady and she, he clearly felt that she, she wanted to seek him out and talk to him. He's very good with people, <laughs> uh, this man. And... Um, so she came to him one day and she told him her story. It was a shocking story that there she was living in Chessington with a family who, um, in effect, kept her as their slave. She slept on the kitchen floor. She did all the washing, cooking, ironing, everything. And she had to take her meals after the family had eaten. They didn't pay her. They didn't let her contact her relatives. It was a case of modern slavery. And he, he came to the safeguarding, small safeguarding team at Chessington when I was there and he told us this story and we said, you have to go to the police. Police went round to this particular home where she was living, took her out. Um, they put her in the care of adult social services in Kingston and she was repatriated to West Africa and went back to her children that she'd left behind. Terribly sad story with a, a nice, happy uh, ending. I don't know what happened to the family who enslaved her, but um, uh, I don't have a lot of sympathy for them. But Paul is saying to these Christians at Galatia, look, if you go back under the, if you go back under the Jewish law, you're going to be going back under slavery. Because if you go back under the law, the whole point of the law is you have to keep it. And you have to keep all of it. So, chapter 3, verse 10. 
Uh, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So in other words, if you want to live under the law, you've got to live under everything in the law. The Ten Commandments and everything else that goes with it, the whole Jewish system, you have to live under that. Now the problem there is, if you want to do that, is sinfulness. <laughs> because if you look in your own heart, you will know that you couldn't possibly keep any of those Ten Commandments for even 24 hours. You just can't do it. And that's the problem with wanting to go back and live under the Jewish system. Is you're a slave to it, but the problem is that you have a sinful heart and you can't keep it. Look at chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? I do think the NIV is not capturing what Paul is saying here. He's talking about the law. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all, all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. So the Christians at Galatia were turning back to the slavery of religion. And whether you want to be Jewish or you want to embrace any of the other religions of the world, you have a problem. And that is that you're going to live as a slave to those religions or to any one of those religions because you can't meet the moral standards that they set. This huge difference between all other religion and the Christian faith is precisely that. Is it, as a Christian, in order to come into heaven, in order to be accepted by God, you don't have to do anything. You have to believe something. It's by faith and not by works. So these uh, Gentile Christians, they were, uh, they were going back to slavery in religion. The whole package, circumcision, the observance of the Jewish calendar, feasts and festivals and so on. And that's the reason why we don't follow those things anymore. We don't celebrate Passover. We don't celebrate the Day of Atonement anymore because those things looked forward to the coming of Christ the Messiah. They're obsolete. We don't use those anymore. Our poor old coffee machine, I think it's finally given up the ghost. I won't tell you about the dramas that were happening with the coffee machine today. So, we were slaves to the law, but now, chapter 4, verse 5, we have been adopted into the family. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you're sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So, you're no longer a slave. But a son, and since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. That's the great thing about being a son in the ancient world is you got the inheritance. <laughs> if you were the oldest son, the inheritance came to you. And that's what Paul is saying. So everything, all the blessings of being a son came to you. So we're also 
children of the promise. And again, the NIV doesn't get it. Uh, I, won't, I won't bore you by saying why particularly, but it's not promise, children of promise. It's children of the promise. Chapter 4, verse 5 again. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, and so on and so on. We're children of the promise. Look at verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? And we'll go on and go on. Um, we won't talk about uh, Hagar and Sarah, because that's the bit I really don't understand very well. But um, in, in, but what he says at the end, verse uh, 31, Therefore, brothers, we're not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. We are children of the promise. Children of the promise. We don't have time to dwell on this, save to say that when you have faith in God's promise, and that's articulated best in Genesis chapter 12, which is the central um, passage in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 12 is God coming to Abraham and saying, I will bless you, and I will bless you in these ways. And he, he kind of bullet points the ways in which he's going to bless him, including the fact that one day all nations will be blessed through you. And Genesis chapter 12 is the promise, which is why I say we are children of the promise. We are children of Abraham, children of the promise. So, excuse me while I dust off my wallet. Um, any banknote, excuse me, there's a moth just came out of my wallet there as well. Um, any banknote, you take any, any particular one, so I don't have 50s in my wallet, but I do have a 5 and a 10. Um, the most important part of the banknote, people say, oh, it's the watermark and the queen's head and so on. Well, it's not actually. The most, fa the, the most important part of the banknote is this tiny bit where I have to, even with my glasses on, it says, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of five pounds. Now, theoretically, you could get on the tube tomorrow, you could go up to bank, and you could go to the chief cashier. It's actually signed by the chief cashier. I can't read his writing, but it's signed by the chief cashier. You could go to the Bank of England and say, look, I want to go to the chief cashier. This is my, you know, he's promised to pay me five pounds, the bearer, on demand, theoretically. You could go to the Bank of England and say, I want to see the chief cashier. They would escort you out to the waiting ambulance or police car or so on. But theoretically, you could do this. And he would have to hand over five pounds. I don't know how he would do that. But that's the promise. And we carry around in our wallets, maybe not as many as we used to, but we carry around in our wallets bunches of promises. And that's why everything's based on trust. And that's why the City of London is in such a mess, because trust has gone. Because when I give you that five pounds, I may not give it to you, but um, if I give you that, I'm promising to pay you five pounds. So in the same way, God promises his salvation. Now, in a promise, there's, there's two parts. There's the promise that the person makes who is going to deliver. 
And then there's the delivery. And Christians live in a kind of, almost like a twilight, I was going to say zone, that's not quite right, a twilight world where we've got the promise, but we haven't quite got the delivery yet. Because the delivery of the promise comes when you die. And that is when you inherit, as a son, you inherit what God has prepared for you in heaven. So although we're Christians now and we're saying we're children of the promise, we haven't quite got it yet. We embrace by faith what God has promised, by faith, but we don't see the delivery of the promise until we reach heaven. So, freedom in Christ. We need to move on rapidly. Chapter 5, verse 1. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now imagine, and for some of you this will be quite hard, imagine you've been kept in Wandsworth Prison for 10 years. You've done something really awful and you've been languishing in Wandsworth Prison for 10 years and then you're set free. You walk out of those terrible front doors and uh, with your package under your arm. <laughs> I don't think it's like that anymore. But anyway, you, you leave the gates of Wandsworth Prison and your solicitor actually meets you. And the solicitor says, no, actually, um, the court has decided that you need to go back and serve another 10 years. So what would you say to your solicitor? I think I'd say, on your bike, and by the way, you're sacked. Um, because that's not the way that it should happen, really. Is it? If you've, you've served your sentence, why would you want to go back inside? Well, that's what Paul is saying to these Galatians. Why do you want to go back and live in a world of porridge when actually you can live as a free person? That's what was happening in these early Turkish churches. The false uh, teachers were coming in and they were saying, no, you need to go back and live as a slave. You need to go back to prison. Paul's argument is we have freedom in Christ. Chapter 5, look at verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to, to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say live by the Spirit. So now we have freedom to live for God. We didn't have that before, but we do have it now. We have freedom to love others and to develop a godly, mature character. We couldn't do that before, but God has sent his Spirit into our hearts to enable us to do that. And as you grow as a Christian, you notice two things. And they seem to be polar opposites. One is, you start to want to please God. Now, previously, you didn't have a care for God. You didn't have a thought for him. But now, you want to please him from time to time, at least. But then the second thing comes into play, which is the polar opposite of that one, which is you realise how sinful you are. And sin has not disappeared. 
it still operates within you. You may not be a slave to it anymore, but it still operates within you. And these things are wrestling within you. And that's what Paul goes on to explain in chapter 5. The spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. So as a Christian, actually, internally, there's quite a struggle going on. But, so you're no longer a slave. You're free. But with the freedom comes a struggle. This week, uh, I looked up on Wikipedia um, the film Shawshank Redemption. I'm sure many of you have seen it. Uh, it's a story of Andy Dufresne, this very rich young man um, who is sent to prison for a long, long time, convicted of murder of his wife's lover. And there he meets this rich uh, number of characters within Shawshank Prison. And um, he meets these characters. It's a great story. Uh, in fact, it's a, it's a, um, a Christian parable. If you read it through Christian eyes, actually the whole story becomes alive. But there's this one particular character. His name is uh, Brooks Hatlin. He's an old man. Um, he's played by the famous Hollywood actor James Whitmore, one of his last uh, great roles, I think. And he plays a very sad character who's been in Shawshank for 50 years. He's completely institutionalised. He's now the, uh, the, 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 um, the prison librarian, and he takes the books around. A very gentle old man. No idea what he was convicted of, but by this stage, he's a very gentle, humble old man. Uh, and he's been there for 50 years. He's probably well over 70. And then his parole comes up. And he's released into the community at large. But he's completely institutionalised. And he can't cope. He's a free man. But he doesn't know how to cope with his freedom anymore. And in a very sad scene, he puts a rope over this beam in his room and he hangs himself. Because he can't cope with the freedom that he has any longer. And as a Christian... Your struggle is to live as a free person. God has set you free from the curse of sin and the law. You're now free to live as a Christian. And how do you do that? Well, there's this internal struggle, but it's not all bad news. It's a struggle, and it always will be until the day we die. But we're not alone. The church helps us with our struggles. Look at chapter 6 verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So, you can look to your mates in the church to care for you, to love you, to be accountable to. And that's the great thing about being Christians together. We're not on an island by ourselves. We are with other Christians, and the fellowship of our brothers and sisters is a help to us as we seek to live the Christian life. We're free to serve each other. We're free to love each other. 
There's a local church not a million miles from here that has a banner outside. I think they're very keen to get people in. And the banner says, church for me. And you know where that's come from. It's come from the marketing people. Church for me. Well, church isn't really for me. Church is for us. And as far as I'm concerned, church is for you. And um, that's what the church is there for. It's there to help you with your struggles as a free person. So, what Paul is suggesting, I think, and this is part of the way in which to understand this whole passage, I think, is you can live under law, uh, an external mechanism, if you like, or you can live by the spirit, an internal compulsion or mechanism. So you can be driven by an external um, force or you can submit to the spirit who lives inside you and you can live your freedom through life in the spirit. And he goes on to explain in chapter 5 and chapter 6 what life in the spirit is. So you need to live it out. Um, one person said that um, freedom as a Christian means you can love God and do what you like. I think I understand what that means. As long as you love God and love your brothers and sisters, you can do what you like. But Paul then goes on to explain what that means. Live by the Spirit. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, and there's that list there. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and so on. You're to live as a free person demonstrating these qualities. So we're free to serve. And there's, a, there's one secret, I think, that um, kind of helps you when you're trying to understand what this struggle means in practice. And that's chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And if you think you're something in the church, you're going to really have a hard time. But if you think you're nothing, you will be set free to serve others as Christ intends you to. So, I don't know where we've got to. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's about right. To sum up, sum up the whole of Galatians, really. False teachers are still around. They're still calling themselves Christians. They're still undermining the faith of many and many Christians can be misguided. Uh, my uncle, who died a few years ago, he was a lovely, optimistic man, a lovely man. His name was Arthur, but everybody called him Jim. And uh, the reason they called him Jim was because he was sunny Jim. And when he was a boy, everybody thought he was so sunny as an individual. And they ended up calling him Sunny Jim. And throughout his life, despite his name being Arthur, he was called, he was called Jim. Now, he was a Christian, uh, came to faith in middle age, I think, and uh, because of his um, huge optimism, uh, he believed that Christians could be perfect. And he sent me this book once through the post, and uh, I read it, and it was um, quite an old-fashioned book about Christian perfectionism. 
don't see it anymore, fortunately. But it taught that you could love God and your brothers and sisters so much that you'd reach this peak of perfection. Well, I only have to look out here today to, to see that that's clearly nonsense. But um, I'm sure you, you're looking the same, the same way. Um, but false teachers are still around and they make these mistakes over and over again. Um, we won't go into them now. We don't have time for them. But watch out. It's Paul's message to the Galatians. Watch out for these false teachers because they're always going to be around. And finally, we can't, we can't leave Galatians without, with Paul, looking to the cross. A word to those who think that they can please God with their own efforts. And frankly, I've thought about this more and more. If, you, if you're not a Christian, but you're serious about God and wanting to be right with him, then inevitably you're in the other camp. You're trying to please him by your own efforts, by living under the law and being moral and upright. You can't please God with your own efforts. You will never be good enough for him, and he's done everything for you anyway. If he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, then why are you still trying to make your own way up that stairway to heaven? You can't. But... You can put your faith in Christ as God intends and that deals with your sinfulness. It sets you free and now you can live for God and serve him. One last tiny illustration. Um, This week I've been listening to the music of um, Benjamin Britten. Benjamin Britten, English composer of the 20th century and... um, he wrote a number of, uh, of, of uh, famous operas and so on, but he wrote this, this little operetta, almost, called um, Noah's Flood. It's written in uh, uh, medieval English, so the spelling's all over the place. Noah is spent in N-O-Y-E, and Flood is spelt F-L-U-D-D-E. <laughs> Noah's Flood. And uh, it's a rather... Lovely little piece, about 45 minutes long. And in it, there's, there's this comical scene where Noah has completed the ark and his children are inside and the animals are inside the ark and his wife refuses to come into the ark. <laughs> she says, no, uh, Noah, you're mad. You've been building this huge box in the middle of the desert. I don't believe you. God is not going to flood the world. And it starts to rain. And she's there with her, as Benjamin Britten puts it, her gossips, her friends. And they are cynical and they are unbelieving. And they drink together. They're all, they're all, they all like their drink. And they stand and they watch and they mock Noah. And he pleads with her, come wife, come into the ark. And she won't. And in the end... Her, uh, her grown-up sons run out, <laughs> they pick her up forcibly and they drag her into the ark. And as she goes into the ark, it says she boxes Noah's ears, which I think is great. So, um, so she's pretty unwilling. But there's a lovely picture in there in that God, if you're not willing, God won't force you 
to come into the kingdom of God. Now, we have to be careful here because the Spirit of God overcomes our unwillingness. But he won't force you to change your mind. You can, li- you can choose to live under the, under the law or you can choose to live however you want to. But God will hold you to that choice. 